Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Naveen Sikka and Sudhir Rani from Terraviva to the show. Naveen Sikka is the founder and CEO of Terraviva, and Sudhir Rani is the CFO. Terviva is a Series D agricultural technology company that is building the world's most sustainable supply chain of plant protein and vegetable oil, utilizing experience in management consulting, technology, natural resources, and agriculture. Naveen established Terviva to understand and extend the benefits of the ancient Pongamia trees' resilience and protein and oil-packed beans. Terviva has since introduced Pongamia as a new commercial crop that converts distressed farmland into sustainable, productive acreage. Under their leadership, Terviva has unlocked Pongamia's potential as a climate-friendly, nutritional powerhouse for feeding the world's rising population. Terviva is the first company to develop high-yielding, non-GMO cultivars of Pongamia and to create edible protein and oil from its beans to feed people. Product partners draw on Terviva's plant protein and vegetable oil supply chain that is world-class in its low-carbon intensity, traceability, and cost-competitive with existing oilseed supplies. Gentlemen, how are you guys doing today? We're great, Raj. Thanks for having us on. Great to be here. And the first voice was Sudhir and the second one is Naveen. You can tell the difference now going forward. So gentlemen, where are you currently located? Uh, we're in uh, the Bay Area in sunny Oakland, California. And how's the weather out there? Fantastic fall day. Uh, it's probably 65 to 70 degrees and, you know, couldn't be better. And no smoke, Raj. No smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so most days I'd be envious, but today Dallas is exactly like that. Clear, a little bit warm, but just beautiful. So we can all say thank you. So Small, small I, miracles. Absolutely, absolutely. So usually I like to open the show by asking my guest something interesting about themselves. But today I'm going to change it up a bit. So there, if you could share something interesting about Naveen and Naveen about Sudhir. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, I've, I've, uh, I've got a lot of stories. I don't know how much time you have. Uh, I've known Naveen since 1993. Uh, moved to the high school that he uh, went to uh, my sophomore year. And uh, we spent the better part of the next decade in school together. Uh, we went to undergrad together and then obviously stayed close friends, roommates uh, over the years. So I've got a lot of stories to share. Naveen has always been one of those that wanted to do something a little different, um, wanted to use his skills to make things better um, and didn't want to follow uh, the traditional path. And I know he'll tell you about his background and kind of his work that he's, that has led us to coming back together uh, 10 years ago to start Terviva. So what's something interesting about him? 
I'll mute his, I'll mute his mic. <laughs> <laughs> Might need a second to think about it. All right, Naveen, what? you want to go? Yeah, yeah, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Um, I'll share two things that are very interesting about Sudhir, professional and personal. Professional, first, Sudhir and I, are, Raj, we're a part of a, of, a, of a big group of friends, high school and college. And as we kind of all meandered through our professional career, some of us became doctors, some of us became lawyers, some of us decided to work in business. I gained an appreciation for Sudhir's very astute business mind. He has great vision into the direction of the, the future of business and the future of our economy. And he's really good at sort of seeing the macro trends and understanding how they're going to play out for specific sectors. So uh, I think that's just a unique talent. He, he's very good at sort of assimilating fact patterns and sharing insights on the, on the professional side. On the personal side, Sudhir has extraordinary hand-eye coordination. Um, he, he is, he's the kind of guy that can, you know, pick up a golf club for the first time or pick up a dart to play darts for the first time. And he's just sort of non-linearly good at it. Um, and I, I think he probably missed a calling in his life as, uh, you know, either a baseball player, if we want to kind of give him the athletic credit or maybe a dart player at a local bar, you know, a renowned dart player at a local bar. So still time for him to catch up on that last one. Now, so there, before you chime in, Naveen, you know, not to pigeonhole CFOs, but the CFOs I've been around usually aren't able to take a macro view of, you know, like you said, connecting the dots or seeing a larger picture. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I think that's what actually makes him a very unique finance professional. Absolutely. So, Sadir, your turn. Naveen, um, I think the thing that I've always uh, enjoyed about being friends with Naveen and um, and obviously now working with him is he knows how to rally people around anything. It could be like the bar that we go to, but in this case, the type of business and how we want to build our mission. And I think that's a unique set uh, that Naveen has been able to get over his lifetime. Um, you can ask all of our friends in high school and college, you know, people uh, want to know what Naveen is thinking and where we want to go. Um, and I think professionally, I've learned a lot uh, from how to build a business uh, from him. And I think in particular, the thing that I learned the most, which is kind of uh, a unique set that I think a CEO is supposed to have, which is to build processes and the management skills that are important to help everybody, even people that are you know really good at something technical or finance or whatever it may be, but to help them be the best they can be by continually learn how to not just manage people, but to create processes that uh, we're not trained in, right? Um, how to be patient and how to, you know, uh, do the things that need to happen and trust that other folks that you've hired get the job done. I appreciate you sharing that, but I'm not going to gloss over the fact that you both brought up bars. It sounds like <laughs> it, it, it sounds like Sadir, while you're playing darts, Naveen will rally the troop to cheer you on. <laughs> it's you know, um, it, it's a it's a social it's a social game. Um, we we are on a ten year journey here, and you know, if you if you're not having fun, uh, you're you're doing something wrong. Okay, Raj, I'll share, I'll share one more thing about Sudhir that we can get off the topic. But since you brought up bars, another talent of Sudhir's <laughs> is that he, he can make a jalapeno anything. 
a jalapeno martini, a jalapeno margarita, a jalapeno, you know, Moscow mule. Um, it's, it, I think he's sort of channeling, you know, as you know, we're Indian American by background. He's sort of channeling the best of our, our heritage with the modern bar scene. You know, it's funny you'd mention that because our COO is also Indian. His name is Roshan. And this year he decided to start growing things. And the first thing he started growing were peppers, jalapeno peppers, other kinds of peppers. <laughs> and now and now he's bottling his own hot sauce. So, I mean, it must be something in the blood. Yes. I, I, need, I, need to meet, I, need, I need to meet him because I have to admit that I have a small garden in front of my house. And there are two things growing right now. One is a, a Padron pepper and the other is a Serrano pepper. <laughs> they are not for cooking. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's amazing amazing so switching gears here let's move on to terviva can you perhaps there give an overview of terviva and your role at the organization yeah absolutely so we started terviva 10 years ago with uh, one fundamental theory of change and that is that we need to grow the food that we consume much more productively and far more sustainably through reforestation and regenerative ag practices, which basically means that we need to use the land that we have better, not plow down sensitive ecosystems to plant more of the same traditional crops that we are growing. So at Terviva, we make carbon negative plant protein and vegetable oil products that are superior from a functionality and taste perspective than the ones that um, are, that we make using soy, yellow pea, and palm oil. And the way we do that is we work with farmers who plant pangamia, which is a uh, ancient Asian legume tree crop. And we do so on idled or abandoned farmland to produce this vegetable oil and protein-rich beans and the thing that got us excited 10 years ago is that certain varieties of pangamia can produce five times or more beans per acre than soy. And we can dramatically reduce the need for further deforestation that has been happening over the last couple of decades to plant more soy and more. So our uh, thesis is that pangamia uh, will have three major advantages. One is functionality and use, and that is taste and all the things that matter in how you make food and food ingredients. Second is cost, and that com that is driven primarily by the fact that it just produces way more per, uh, per acre than you can with a traditional annual crop like soy. And third, and perhaps uh, part a big part of our mission, is the sustainability. Right. These trees that will grow over decades are natural carbon sink. And Terviva essentially is providing a nature based solution to future food needs. Naveen, do you have anything to add? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, know, you asked about roles, Raj. Sudhir and I, we wear the hats of CEO. I, me as the CEO, Sudhir is the CFO, but we've worn a lot of hats from inception of the company to today. I think today we actually wear the very traditional roles that those uh, that those acronyms represent. So Sudhir leads our finance team, leads effectively the construction of our pro forma economics, as well as all the day-to-day -day finance and accounting needs of the company, which has grown to about 100 people. And I I am you know the, the titular CEO that takes a look at strategy and what's going on in the horizon and 
helps build a, a seasoned management team to execute on that strategy. When we started, uh, we, we, we did it all, like everybody. Um, the moment that sort of always comes to mind is when we moved out of our second scrappy office into a nicer office, we were actually growing these pangamia trees on kind of like a balcony um, here in Oakland. <laughs> it could have been mistaken for something else that grows sometimes <laughs> in Oakland. And I remember the hard work that Sudhir and I had to undergo to like literally lift like probably like hundreds of pounds of soil and plants and dispose of them as we finally got to the point where we were graduating and moving to a real office and we were going to keep the growing to where things should be grown. So, um, you know, it's, it's been a fun journey. So you both mentioned the Pongamia tree. Two questions. How did you guys land on the idea of the Pongamia tree and what does Terviva mean? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at that one, Raj. So the, the idea really came from a trip that I took to India in 2009 both Sudhir and I had connected philosophically on what we thought business could do to make the world a better place. I was looking at the more of the sort of energy side of the equation at the time. And Sudhir has, of course, a background in finance and was investing in companies that were sort of across the spectrum of making impact. I went to India. I saw what Sudhir described, these pangamia trees growing in some very difficult agricultural conditions and producing a lot of beans. And I sort of saw a semi-industry of this happening in India, but the end markets were you know, very niche and pretty low value. They were these Ayurvedic kind of topical and sort of gut health applications that pangamia beans were being used for. And so the, the light bulb that went off at that time is that pangamia could be a production style agriculture crop, kind of like almonds or citrus growing though on this poor quality land and producing vegetable oil and protein that could serve the broad basket of needs that crops like soybean and palm serve. So it was pretty much a eureka trip actually in April of 2009 for four days, straight California to central India, looking at what was there and then coming back and convincing first my family, and then Sudhir and some others to give this a go, right? And the, the seminal moment of formation of the company was about a year later in 2010, we had entered ourselves into a number of business plan competitions and investment prize opportunities. And we actually won a series of them, right, in, um, in Q2 of 2010. And we hadn't yet actually formed a company or formed an entity, a bank account. Uh, we were using the name Terviva. Raj, because it connected the very essence of what we thought this tree could do, which is terra for land and viva for life, like bringing new life back to the land. So it's sort of a coined name for the company. And it was that moment where, you know, Sudhir and myself and some of the other people around the company at that early stage in 2010 said, let's go for it. Let's form the bank account. Let's cash these checks. Let's, let's try to build this thing. So where specifically in India were you? I was in the Indian states of Andhra Pradesh and Karnataka. And feel free to get as technical as you need to. I know there's a lot of regulation around importing seeds, flowers, fauna from other countries. Can yeah. you share with the audience some of the challenges you had to go through to get Pongamia? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's black and white, right? There are very clear laws in certain jurisdictions around the world and what we call biopiracy. India as a country and other countries in, in emerging other emerging market countries have been taken advantage of 
and have had their biological resources um, exported and appropriated. It's sort of the history of agriculture. Um, so we actually decided very early not to work with India-derived pangamia trees. Um, we actually worked with, we've worked with a group out of Australia uh, that did some selection work in the natural environment there where pangamia is basically considered a street tree, an ornamental tree, and there's no sort of an intrinsic intellectual property value to those trees. And those are the trees that we've actually built our program off of to date. Uh, now, what's interesting, Raj, is that in India, there is a robust supply of pangamia beans today. There's millions of tons of these beans that are used for the kind of niche applications that I mentioned earlier. We can actually take those beans, which you know are just beans that are, are currently used, and we can process them into food-grade products. And that's what we plan to do with our business in India. And what about the regulations getting them here to the U.S.? There's, uh, at, at least for Australia, you have to file permits both on the Australia side and on the U.S. side to import or export, depending on what you're looking at, plant-based material. In India, there's a much stricter regimen of controls that are, you know, serially at the local, state, and federal level that we've explored, but we're not actively looking to export India genetics. Got it. And it's interesting you mentioned biopiracy. I had no idea that such a thing existed till about two or three years ago when I read a book about the history of tea and sure. how tea was stolen by the British from China and then planted in India. And then the distribution happened through the chaiwalas in the, t in the stations, et cetera. But um, sure. I, I had no idea that such a thing even existed. So I appreciate you shining a light on that. Tea, bananas, citrus, uh, avocados, mangoes, mangoes, could go on and on. Right. Um, mangoes is a more recent one that's you know particularly concerning. Mangoes being basically the provenance of the Indian subcontinent, um, and, and it's and I and I, I think it's really really important to respect that our natural assets really are are our common goods. Um, there's a, a modern history of agriculture that has taken, for example, um, soybean seeds and corn seeds and genetically modified them and claimed them to be proprietary. And I, I, the, the intellectual in me sort of understands that, but the, the humanist element of me feels that um, it's very difficult to restrict um, elements of nature from the communities from which they come. So, you know, you mentioned the humanist part of you and you mentioned philosophically earlier, crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do now. Both of you mentioned, you know, your friendship and I think you went back through 1993, I believe. So there said, but why? Terraviva, why did you decide to launch it? There were so many other things you could do with your skill set. You know, what was the impetus? Well, I, I can get started on that. Um, I mean, for me, I grew up uh, in a very traditional finance background. I did investment banking, asset management, and private equity. You know, while I was going through that journey, even in the first year of investment banking, when I was like 21 or 22, right out of undergrad, I always wanted to do something outside the guardrails of finance. You know, I remember trying to pitch deals to my managing director as an analyst. And I got booted out of the office more than once. It wasn't something you do. I joined, you know, a fund of funds uh, division after banking, uh, while most of my friends were going into kind of private equity or business school. And then, um, you know, for me, uh, I think a big thing changed. Uh, my mom 
got ovarian cancer uh, when she was 45 and passed away. And I was 25 at that time, right in the middle of that finance career. And it just created a further urgency in my mind to do something not just different, but pursue things that are bold and unique. And I didn't know what to do. And I think I talk, when I talk to my friends about this, for the longest time, I'm like, I want to do something different, but I don't know what. And so to me, I always like to try to keep myself open to ideas, to be creative. You know, I, I met my uh, wife uh, right around that time. We moved to India. I worked in the private equity division of a, a global hedge fund. Um, it was it was a great time to travel around the country that uh, I was born in and but left as a kid uh, where, you know, all my family has come from. And it, you know, just changed my perspective on what I thought was important. And it allowed me to take risk and chances. So uh, going, I guess the last story I'd share about that uh, briefly is that I decided to come back to business school um, uh, right at the essentially the peak of my career, D. Shaw there for after a couple of years. Remember the last thing I did before I left was to interview uh, second year business school students from Harvard and Stanford to come work for me as an analyst. And I remember doing that interviews, those interviews thinking, you are going back to business school and the back of the bus. And to me, it didn't feel that way. It felt like a, a reinvigoration of my ability to kind of sit there for a couple of years, meet a lot of really cool people, which I have, and work on this thing with Naveen, which honestly, I would not have done if I didn't uh, take those steps in my life. So there, I appreciate you sharing that personal story. Naveen, what about you? What's your why? Yeah, I, I mean, I, we we have a we have a shared journey in some respects, Raj. It's a, so their story is very powerful, and you know, death. I was right there with him when his when his mother was passing away, and death is a great reminder that we're only here for a certain amount of time. And so, um, you know, I think it's 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 mobilizing to to try to commit to doing something that you think will really matter. Um, I I would add that, you know. We recently we crossed over the 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman's seminal work on capitalism, and um, a lot's changed in 50 years about the role that business leaders think uh, the, the the private sector should play in making the earth a better place. You know, now you have guys like Ray Dalio and Jamie Dimon and so many others saying, "Hey, it's got to be way more than just shareholder return." So there and I saw that, you know, that we, we were a part of that generation in the 90s and early aughts that saw the potential for business to be a conduit of change. And you didn't necessarily have to go serve in government or go work for an NGO or nonprofit to make that happen. So I think, you know, we always felt like once we trained up and we talked about this, actually, once we trained up, we would try to work in impact oriented businesses. Of course, we had no idea we would do it together or it would come this far, but it's something that was a part of our shared bar conversations from from many years ago. So let's talk about that for a moment. So you've been doing this for 10 years now. What are some of the challenges, both professional and personal, you faced on this journey? And, and specifically, I want to go back to that comment you made regarding the Milton Friedman and the 50-year tipping point, because I know that there have been times when I've struggled too, when I had my own software startup about five or six years ago, and the goal of the startup was to create more community and connection between individuals. And 
as we're walking down this journey and I'm trying to convince people that no, we need to do things differently. And, you know, whether it's peers, whether it's family, there's pushback regarding, you know, what about making money? What about, you know, famous? What about notoriety? What are some of the challenges you've had in your journey and how have you been able to handle those? Well, uh, I'll take that. Uh, I think some of those things, yeah, I, I didn't. Neither Naveen and I, nor I, you know, grew up in a you know a wealthy household. We're you know very much middle class, you know, uh, kind of upbringing. So we had uh, you know great parents, um, you know, great brothers uh, that have helped us along the journey, and great friends. You know, get into finance, and then all of a sudden the world looks different. Um, you know, you start to pursue uh, monetary. Uh, compensation as your primary driver, because in finance, at least, that is how you determine whether someone is good or not, uh, for the most part. And so getting off of that train is rather difficult. Um, and for the better part of the last 10 years, Naveen and I have sacrificed, uh, you know, ourselves and our families in particular have sacrificed a lot, uh, allowing us to kind of pursue our mission here at Terviva. You know, I guess what I would say is that, you know, if you uh, if you have to ask yourself what is important. And for me, you know, all of those things are always important. I'd be lying if I didn't say that money or or fame or one of those things uh, didn't generally matter. But how you get there, I think, does matter. You know, I, I want to live my life uh, if, if I if I'm not considered broadly successful by society being successful by the pursuits of what I think are meaningful um, and building something that's unique that connects uh, to the broader mission. Naveen, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, I'll just sort of pull off of something I said earlier, Raj, I, I think it's gotten easier to cut the path that Sudhir and I have cut. I mean, I'm not trying to shortchange what we've done, but we're, we're insiders, you know, we spent 10 years in investment banking and management consulting. And along during that time, we, we saw the changes that were happening in business. Um, it's become increasingly easier to both strive to be a profitable organization that returns capital to shareholders and to meet broader social needs because consumers care about that. Right. Consumers being the ultimate purchasers of everything, you know, whether it's electrons or, you know, protein shakes. Right. They're caring more and more about buying the right kinds of things. And they're driving change through many industries to make sure that they're getting what they want. So um, I do think we you know, we had this sort of core belief on how we wanted our careers to go. And we've also been the, we've, we've benefited from the fact that business as, you know, as, as a kind of a space has moved toward social impact. Can, can I just pick on that uh, briefly on this, this idea of shared belief systems? I think it's um, pretty interesting. You know, I started hearing about the idea of shared belief systems, you know, call it six or seven years ago. I'm sure it was there before, but I, I wasn't really privy to it. And as I researched it, it kind of made more sense. And I think what has changed in the last, call it five years, 10 years, is that, you know, I think we have the opportunity to kind of be the central rallying point for lots of 
rapidly growing and sometimes independent shared belief systems around the globe, right? So to give you an example of that, you've got folks that believe in organic or clean food. Uh, climate change obviously is a big deal. Um, those people that are anti-soy because of, you know, the biological effects um, on the human body, perhaps, or on climate, animal welfare. There's many of these things and, and they're all coming together, right? And it's becoming this more, much more cohesive group that believes what they believe and it's rapidly shifting how businesses see their interactions with consumers. I agree. And in my mind, I kind of see this Venn diagram that opens and shrinks into concentric circles and opens up again. So I, I, I like the comment about shared belief systems. Before we go on, you mentioned the Pongamia tree. Can you share all the uses for the fruit itself, the seed and the shells? So Pongamia itself is a crop. It, it produces uh, beans in shell. And this shell is kind of like a, a peanut husk, if you will. Uh, so you can kind of open it with your hands, but we use a, a shell. And that uh, leaves us with essentially two things. One is uh, a dry, woody, woody mass, uh, biomass for the shells. And then a, a bean that has essentially two things in it, uh, an oil, crude oil, and a, a high-protein meal. And pangamia, as Naveen mentioned earlier, has historically been used kind of for, because it's so bitter, the oil and the, the meal, it hasn't really been uh, used in food applications, but more in kind of Ayurvedic medicinal applications. And functionally, what Teriva has been able to figure out over the last, you know, four or five years is how to remove these flavor compounds that make the oil and the meal very bitter. And we use traditional kind of oil seed processing equipment with some secret sauce for pangami itself uh, in uh, a composition and method uh, patents that we've filed and have to reduce the bitterness in the oil and the protein. So now you have essentially two major products. One is a heart-healthy, extremely tasty uh, vegetable oil for cooking. Um, and sautéing and other food ingredient applications, and a protein product that can go into all sorts of alternative meats, dairies, and, and food ingredients that uh, are now uh, growing. The shells, uh, we've done some tests uh, in the past. Uh, it, our plan isn't really to monetize that right now, but we know that we can you know, pelletize it and burn it and create some, create some uh, electricity out of it. And again, just another technical question. How do you harvest the beans from the trees? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, one of the things I didn't mention is that, you know, we work extensively in Florida for the past nearly decade. There you've got uh, historically a million acre citrus farm, uh, citrus trees that have been planted and grown really well, mostly for the orange juice market. Uh, unfortunately, um, there is a disease that's affected that crop, and now uh, a super majority of those acres have come out of production, leaving you know hundreds of thousands of uh, arable land that is essentially idle uh, because there's not a lot of other crops that can grow on those soils and, and, and at, at scale. And that's really our opportunity to to use that land better with Pangania. And when we got there. You know, uh, in 2010 and 11, 
we learned very quickly it wasn't good enough just to provide growers with a high-yielding crop. You really needed to create all of the best uh, agronomic practices surrounding the growing, right? So it's genetics and the environment and, and optimizing those for yield and costs. And so to your question, to your direct question about harvesting, um, we knew that we couldn't uh, hand uh, harvest this crop. Uh, it's just too expensive to do so. And so we use a mechanical uh, extractor, uh, essentially a harvesting machine that uh, Californians are, uh, know all about. Uh, the Million Acre Pistachio and Almond Industry uses shaking equipment. And we have developed uh, methods to use that same equipment, essentially, for the Pangaku tree. And you mentioned provide growers. What is the business model? Do you own the farms, grow the farms? Do you franchise the trees? How does this work? Yeah, good question, Raj. We uh, This is a, a 30-year crop. Uh, it will start producing in year four, the beans. We partner with these growers over that time. And what that means for us is that we sell these trees to growers. They will use their land to farm it, uh, which is what they're best at doing, uh, better than we can. Uh, we help provide kind of the data analytics and the agronomic best practices around managing uh, weeds and harvesting and things like that. Ultimately, we then buy back those beans from the grower uh, through an offtake agreement. We take those beans and we process those beans into vegetable oil and plant protein. So the growers uh, are the farmers uh, farming these pandanu trees on this idled uh, land. We provide the technology on the front end on uh, the trees, these non-genetically modified varietals that we've developed. And we provide a market for the farmer to sell there. And I know I'm getting in the weeds here, but I'm just really curious. Do you finance the farmers? Do they bring their own financing? And follow-up question is, can they be grown in Texas? <laughs> well, we actually, Naveen could talk about this. We uh, One of our first, grower, uh, first plantings was in, um, in Texas, in Port Lavaca and, uh, and southern part of Texas. Uh, it can grow there. Uh, you know, one of the things that we realized early on is that we wanted to leverage the fact that this citrus farming industry actually grew trees and the associated infrastructure around the trees that Pangamia can drop right into. Um, in terms of uh, your first question, uh, we well, remind me what the question again was. Sorry. Uh, the financing model, do you... Oh, the financing model. Yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, the, uh, the financing model. Yeah, historically, uh, growers have paid for trees and uh, and we've done uh, the uh, other other things like buying back the beans. However, we are now looking at creative financing solutions. So in particular, uh, we had recently announced a partnership with Farmer Mac, uh, which is um, the, the Freddie and Fannie of the agriculture industry. And they're looking to use their um, asset base and their capital to to further develop their sustainability uh, prowess. And obviously, the million acre uh, distress that they see in citrus is an area they can help. So they've uh, they're going to provide debt financing to growers to develop pangami fields uh, in Florida. And so a grower can use his or her land. Uh, 
borrow capital from Farmer Mac, develop those uh, fields for uh, the yields that they're going to get. Thank you. So 10 years on this journey, 11 years, what are some of the aha moments or surprise moments you've experienced? And Naveen, feel free to chime in. Yeah, I, a lot of things have changed since we started. Probably the only thing that's remained consistent is that we continue to work on this tree. The I think it's important, and I've learned when you build a business like this, that you've got to have a true north, Raj. We, you've, you've got to know what you're trying to achieve overall. And I think Sudhir said it perfectly right up front. Uh, for us, it's about climate resilient, low carbon, profitable agriculture. Um, that's always been our goal, but how to get there has very much changed. So, you know, we indicated up front that we started by thinking about this tree for biofuel and for livestock feed. And about halfway through the journey, the plant-based food movement kicked into overdrive. Now everybody's interested in plant-based burgers and in nut milks and, and alternatives to dairy and meat. And we decided to capitalize on that. We decided to see if we could actually take these beans and further process them into food grade plant protein and vegetable oil. And we knew we would need to do that in a way that was natural, that wasn't loaded with chemicals in the processing because that would make that would make this not attractive to consumers. So it was a gamble and it worked out. And now we very much position ourselves as a company that makes these food ingredients for plant-based foods from this beautiful tree, but it, it didn't start that way. What, what stayed consistent is the goal of getting a lot of these trees in the ground by getting consumers, by getting the demand around the products that we make, whatever those products would be, so that we could achieve those, those impacts of low-carbon agriculture and climate-resilient food supply. And really central to what we do is we think a lot about farmers. We need to continue to make farming a profitable business in the world, especially in light of all the problems that are out there with climate change. Uh, if we don't do that, farmers will stop farming and we'll have big problems in food security. So there, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we ask ourselves, you know, what, what, what if you could grow trees that just produce way more soybean like outputs, but grow it on the millions of acres of farmland that currently are out of production, right? So it isn't about replacing the current soy acres, right? Uh, you ask anyone, we've got 300 million acres of soy planted worldwide. Um, you know, I think 50 to 70 million acres of palm oil planted worldwide. And it's the last 100 million acres of soy that were planted are not in the Midwest, uh, but rather in sensitive uh, wetlands and, and rainforests and other uh, areas. We need another 100 to 200 million acres just to kind of feed the growing, growing demand for food and, uh, and feed. And so for us, what has always been consistent and true, as Naveen said, is that as these demands for soy-based products and other kind of products grow, the land base is going to continue to be impacted. And if we can do something about using what we already have better, then we can make the product. Um, uh, we can make a change, excuse me. And in terms of surprises on the journey, I mean, I think Naveen hit it. You know, the rapid shift in consumer preferences towards plant-based foods, not just by vegetarians, but also through uh, from meat eaters, uh, is, you know, is a game changer. Um, I think it's going to allow a lot of companies, including ourselves, to bring uh, forward new and innovative 
technologies, and obviously we're we're using nature-based solutions for that. And you know, if I had to share one thing, consumers. Uh, want now or will want going forward is that consumers are going to want healthy, tasty, and sustainable sources. And they're going to want to know where it came from, how it's grown, and that what they're doing is having leaving a positive impact around the world. So while I have you both in line, which one of you recognize that opportunity? Interesting question, Raj. So they're actually flagged for me in 2016 the momentum around plant-based foods and the need for us to pivot toward that market to more than anything, generate continued investor interest in what we're doing. The the intellectual in me initially resisted that because in agriculture, most of our commodity crops don't actually go to plant-based foods or even food. They go to energy and to livestock. And I'll still maintain that the biggest impact Pangamia can have as a crop in the long run is replacing soybean and corn-like acres, which are you know, 80-90% used for energy and for feed and not really mm-hmm. used for food. So uh, we, we, we dipped our necks into the market. There was, for me, a pretty pivotal moment that accelerated my thinking on moving into plant-based foods and food in general. And actually, this is a phone call that Sudhir probably remembers. We were both on the phone call. It was pretty late at night here in California. And we had gotten connected, Raj, to a senior executive in the food industry, in the food and feed industry in India. And we arranged for a time to speak to this person. We called him up. Actually, I, I conferenced Sudhir in and just called him up directly on his cell phone. That's what he asked for us to do. And he was in Mumbai and it was in the morning. And you could tell he was walking on the street. It was very noisy. He's a very senior person and carving out some time for us. And I just dive straight into the pitch. I tell him, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if we took this pangamia tree that's already well-known in India and we made biofuel and livestock feed for India for the growing needs for those products? And he listened and he said, yeah, that would be really exciting. He And then he said, you know, you should also look at doing food because people in India really need food. Mm-hmm. And it was this very simple way of saying, yes, we all know a lot of the things we make in agriculture go toward feeding animals and powering cars, but there still is that part of the, you know, the food supply chain that's underserved, right? Where you don't really have affordable food locally produced and accessible to everybody. And that's where his, that's where this particular person's mind was at. It was humbling, you know, the cacophony of the streets of Bombay in the background, you know, <laughs> you can sort of visualize what's going on there. And for me, it was a real turning point to just have the have the vision to try to see if we could land this in the food markets. I appreciate you sharing that. Before we go further, so there mentioned earlier, a 30-year tree. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's a permanent crop, Raj. So it uh, will live for actually more than 30 years. It will uh, in, we've seen uh, trees in Florida where it's been um, grown for over 100 years as a tree tree. We've seen trees in Hawaii for, that are uh, over 100 years old still producing crop. But in your traditional permanent crop setting, like uh, almonds and pistachios, you typically rotate uh, out of those trees after about 25 or 30 years. So it'll produce, it starts producing in year four, 
and it will produce for another 25 years. And at some point, you'll probably want to replace them with new varietals. And is it an annual harvest? It is an annual harvest. Thank you for that clarification. So it's, let's call it 2025. What does the future hold for Terviva? Maybe you want to take it? Well, I'll, I'll start, jump, jump into there. Um, we see this crop having the potential to be on millions of acres. It'll make food. It will make feed. It will make energy. It'll make everything that you can get out of big scale crops like corn and soy and palm. And we're beginning to think, you know, how do we, if, if we plant a hundred trees an acre, even 5 million acres is 500 million trees. We're starting to think about how we get there. Uh, what kinds of resources we need, what kinds of partners. The food and ag supply chain is long and slow and doesn't necessarily take to innovation easily. And so I think the next big thing for us, Raj, is to court the biggest partners in our space that really care about all the things we keep mentioning, you know, food security, climate change, low carbon, farmer livelihood, find those people so that they can help accelerate this journey, right? We've, we've always said, this isn't about us, or and this isn't even about Terbiva, this is about the tree, right? A tree that has dramatic potential to improve a lot of what's wrong right now and will, will continue to be big problems going forward. So I'd like to see us really stitch together with some of the most influential players in the food and ag supply chain and scaling Pongamia very aggressively. I do think that means that, you know, we'll look very different five years from now than we look today. But I think that's okay so long as the mission of what we do and its relevance is cemented into, you know, how we conduct business. So, dear, do you have anything to add? I, I think that was well said. I mean, I think consumers are also going to be important. How, how those trends continue to evolve in the types of products we bring to market, um, the channels in which we go to. Uh, you know, we're closely listening to the partners that we have now, uh, both on the farming side as well as on the uh, on the consumer side. Uh, you know, I think from my from my vantage point, one of the things that I want to be able to bring here is innovative financing tools for farmers to deploy large scale um, pungami plantings. And I think I'm I'm very excited uh, because I think finance and uh, ESG are becoming much more real. And as we continue to get these food products into the hands of consumers, we're going to have an opportunity to really do pretty cool stuff uh, around finance and structures. You know, you both have made this tree sound like a super tree. I think you should have its own campaign. (laughs) It is, it is, it is really an amazing tree. It's also emblematic, I think of, many other natural assets that we have, Raj, other types of crops that if consumers are willing to eat and try new and different things like they are today, I think you could see a couple other pongamias come out there and a couple dozen other more niche crops meet the food needs of our planet more sustainably. So we hope to kind of be paving a path here for future innovation using our broad biodiversity. Which sounds like a beautiful path. So before I get to my last question, I want to just thank you, gentlemen. It's been a great conversation. I've enjoyed this experiment, and um, I appreciate you guys participating. Last question is, and you can take this individually, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? I will start. I will say, Raj, that um, 
building a company, being an entrepreneur is, yeah, it's going to be a lot more fun and harder than you think. I think for me, the key has been having a chance to work with, a, you know, one of my closest friends. Uh, as Naveen knows, there's been lots of, you know, dark days uh, over the last decade, but there's also been, you know, amazing ups. And I think for us, the key is to be humble, to be content with the mission that we've set ourselves to. Uh, and I guess I'll leave with the a quote that one of our uh, advisors, Mark Tursik, who is the former CEO of the Nature Conservancy, uh, recently put up on, uh, on LinkedIn that I really liked. Uh, and it goes like this, think big, act big, try to do the right thing, period. I love that. Naveen? Yeah, I, I love that quote too. And I'll, I'll borrow from the last part um, of that quote. It helps a lot when consumers, all of us, buy our values, meaning we purchase things that reflect the world that we want to live in. It really does help a lot. Maybe sometimes it feels like like your vote in, in a presidential election. My my vote doesn't matter, but it, it does actually, right? If if everybody voted, then that would matter, right? So I would say the same thing. If everybody purchased their values, we would see faster, even faster change in energy, in food, in healthcare, in education, right? Um, we would not be here if it were not for consumers deciding that they want something different. So please keep going out there and buying your values. That's great advice. And I think to earlier in the conversation, you know, you mentioned Jamie Dimon and Milton Friedman. I think we're seeing a shift in that where people are spending more conscientiously. And I, that's why I think some of these large funds are, you know, changing their direction and some of their mandates regarding ESG. But, um, I, I agree, and that's a great place to leave off. I've so enjoyed speaking with you, gentlemen, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you, Raj. Okay. Great to speak. Thanks, Raj. Thank you, guys. Appreciate Thanks for the it. opportunity. Bye. Bye. Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, The Adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue at our website, nexuspmg.com, under the Original Content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.